for our New Testament reading this morning, we finish up chapter 9, beginning with verse 35 through 41. And in the first 34 verses of the chapter, we, we read about Jesus restoring uh, sight to a blind man, giving him physical sight from a man that had been born blind. In these final verses, uh, Jesus will be bringing spiritual sight to this same man. So beginning with, with verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. And our sermon text this morning is in the book of John also, chapter 1. We have two verses this morning, verse 1 and verse 14. Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. Amen. Thank you, Gerald. Thank you, music team. Good singing, church. Ferris, Lord Jesus, man, my soul wells up in hallelujahs. Boy, it's good to see you today. Good to see you back. What an encouragement you are. Thank you. Thank you for being an encouragement to my heart. Um, music ministers uh, have nightmares. Preachers have nightmares, too. Uh, I won't go into those with you, but uh, let me just say it's good to see you here. Your presence is an encouragement. And to our guests that are here, uh, man, you had a choice. You could have gone a lot of other places. And for some reason, uh, God had you here. So thank you. God bless you. Pray that you'll be, uh, you'll not regret your visit at Rockdale Community Church this morning. Uh, it's a bittersweet morning. Uh, gosh, what, 18 years ago, whatever, saying, came here as a two-year-old baby. And uh, now she's going to some little school up in Massachusetts. Uh, so uh, we need to gird her up with prayer. We're going to miss her. Great job, two years of an uh, administrative assistant here on staff. And uh, so may God go before, before you, Zane. God bless you. And uh, Last Sunday for Bruce and Abby Burkholder. Man, the daggers keep coming to the heart there. Uh, man, we love y'all. Uh, every one of your babies have been born here, I think, uh, right, as, as part of this church family. And, uh, and they're, they're moving. And uh, so, man, we love you. And we look forward to this. We know you're going to visit Mimi and whatever his name is. Uh, <laughs> and so we'll, we'll, we'll look forward to seeing y'all. Uh, and, man, one of our non-members, Ray, what a blessing to have you this summer with us, buddy. Man, what an encouragement you've been. Thank you for being a receiver of the Word of God every Sunday. 
And now you're heading back home to Idaho. And, uh, man, uh, keep watching us on YouTube, okay, until we get banned anyway, okay? So just keep watching us. And uh, God bless you, brother. We love you. It's great, been great getting to know you. And, uh, man, bittersweet Sunday. So uh, what do we do during bittersweet times? We turn our eyes upon Jesus, right? We just turn our eyes upon Jesus. And at the beginning of the summer, we began pondering together the names of Jesus. Okay, we're returning to that study now. And, and, and do you remember why we were doing that? Why did we start doing that? Well, because um, of the way our last book study ended. Our last book study was Second Peter. And the last verse said, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory forever and ever. And then Paul, the Apostle Paul, said, okay, we want to do that. We want to grow in the knowledge of Jesus. And so how do we do that? And the Apostle Paul uh, gave us one of the primary ways we do that in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, when he says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So, we want to grow in the knowledge of Jesus. We want to become more like Him. And Paul tells us the way we do that is by beholding Him. And how do we behold Him? We behold Him from this book. Because He's not here physically. That day will come. That day is promised. It is a certainty. It will come. And when we see Him, according to 1 John 3, 2, we will be as He is. We will be fully glorified. We will be like Him. But until that day... How do we grow in the likeness of him? Well, we behold him. We behold him from the pages of this book. And that's what we've been doing in our study of the names of Jesus. Okay? And we, we, we said from the beginning, we're not going to get them all. We're not going to get them all. There's no way. We're not going to get them all. But we're going to get a bunch of them. Okay? Several years ago, I came across this quote, which I appreciated but it moved me to ponder. It was one of those quotes where, man, that's great. But then you start to dig down deep in it. You say, well, maybe we, I need to ponder this a little bit more. And the quote went like this. I, I don't remember who said it. So uh, forgive me if you're watching on YouTube and this was your quote. I'm sorry. I don't, I did, for some reason I've lost who said this. But it said, we are called to behold God, not explain him. And I say, Amen. But a cautious amen. A cautious amen. So first, why do I say amen? Well, because who can explain God? If you can explain God fully, the being you're explaining is not God, okay? Make sure you understand that, okay? Who can fully explain God in all his glorious attributes, in all his wonder, in all his incomprehensibility, okay? Kids rockers know that word. They love to say it when they raise their hand, okay? What's an attribute? Incomprehensibility. They love it. You, their faces are just beaming, okay? Who, who can fully explain our text that Gerald read? God becoming flesh in Jesus. That's going to be our focus today in a few minutes. The scriptures speak often of the incomprehensibility of God. Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom of, and knowledge of God. 
How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Psalm 139.6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. I can't get there with my peanut human brain. Job 11, verses 7 and 9. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. So, since God and his incarnate son Jesus can't be fully explained or comprehended, the Bible tells us that, then just behold him. Behold him. Behold his glory. Behold his incomprehensibility. Behold his magnificent wonder. Behold his majestic, uh, exalted uh, place in the universe. Just behold it. Okay. Okay. We will. We want to do that. Yes. Amen. We can't explain God fully, so we will behold him. But my amen is a cautious one for this reason, because the quote begs the question, which God are you beholding? Which Jesus are you beholding? Because it might not, especially in America, it might not be the God of the Bible. It might be a phony Jesus. Examples. The false God of the false prosperity gospel. You don't want to behold him. False God. The false God of the all love God and no wrath. My God would never send anyone to hell. Okay, well, your God is not the God of the Bible. The false God who winks at sin and doesn't demand holiness. I sat across from a lady and actually heard these words. God told me to divorce my husband because he wants me to be happy. That's not the God we want to behold. The phony Jesus who loves me and lets me do what I want. Instead of go and sin no more, it's stay in sin galore. So, beloved, we must be beholding the right God. We must be beholding the God that Scripture reveals to us. We must be beholding the biblical Jesus. That means that our minds should be stretched by the things of God, and we should ponder them deeply. We should not back away from this. Knowing God and knowing Jesus should be the unending and ever-flourishing priority of our lives. The writer of Hebrews scolds his readers for being content to remain in the faith. Listen, Hebrews chapter 5, beginning at verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. Dull of hearing. That word, that phrase means sluggish, apathetic, and sleepy. So, when I see you dull of hearing, I may say something every now and then. Not by name, okay, but... Our veterans know when you hear me say, hang with me, hang with me, that means I've seen somebody dull of hearing. Dull of hearing, apathetic, sluggish, sleepy. The anonymous writer of Hebrews is 
is, is, is lovingly confronting his listeners. You've become like this. You need to wake up. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained, listen, by constant practice. Constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Constant practice. The constant reading of Scripture. The constant thinking on the things of God. Constant Connection with God in prayer. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians to pray without ceasing. Does that mean walk around with our eyes closed, bumping into walls and things? No, it means having that constant connection with God mentally. Whereby when things arise, our first response is, Lord, give me wisdom. Lord, what do I do in this situation? Lord, how do I respond to this? constant interaction with the people of God. You can't get away from the people of God because when you do, like a coal that's removed from the fire, that ember will soon go out. It has to stay with the people of God. Constant fellowship, constant pondering and thinking on the attributes of God, constant pondering the names of Jesus as we have been doing corporately in recent days. Michael Horton puts his finger on a a problem uh, in today's church, especially in America. He says this, quote, we find it far easier to nod as if we agree with someone than to explain why we don't. Many Christians today simply do not want to dig into significant doctrinal themes especially at the risk of alienating those believers who disagree. I can understand that, he says. We're tired of fighting. We've been through too many wars, too many anathemas and threatening shouts across the table. We need peace, unity, and love in spite of our diversity. But in quoting the prophet Jeremiah, Martin Luther wisely reminded us of the futility and, in fact, dishonesty of crying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Jeremiah 6, 14. Although we must be at peace ourselves with God, which is one of the gifts that comes with our salvation We now have peace with God. We've been justified. We have peace with God. We're no longer his enemies. The war is over. The hostility is over. We who who were his enemies have been adopted as his sons. We who were distant and fighting against him, even though we may not have even realized it, we have now been brought near through the blood of Jesus. So, yes, we must be at peace, but we cannot idly sit by to watch the doctrinal and theological content of our faith 
effervesce into oblivion. And I fear that's what's happened in the 21st century American church in a lot of places. The doctrinal content has just vanished away because it's God loves you and that's all you really need to know. Question. If an unsaved person asked you about God or asked you to describe the God you worship or asked you to explain to explain why you believe in God, the God of the Bible, or asked you who Jesus is, or asked you about the incarnation or the virgin birth, or why, why did Jesus have to die, etc., etc., etc. What would you say? What would you say? Some pulpiteers think it's not even important for you to be able to answer those questions. After all, you're not on a truth quest. You're on a happiness quest. I heard somebody say this, and I've got to dig in and get to, because I don't want to be saying something out of line here, but he was talking about a survey done among evangelical churches. And the number one problem, 60% of the people responded by saying their, their biggest problem was a lack of, of comfort. <laughs> you, you read about Paul and you, and you read about Peter and these guys that were crucified upside down for their faith and, and, and riding in jail for their faith. And the biggest problem in the American church is lack of comfort. Really? Really? So is it important to be able to respond to those kind of questions? Is it? I believe it is. I believe it is. And I believe most of you believe it is. That's the good news about this place. I believe that the vast majority of you believe it's important to be able to answer those questions. Many who have gone before us thought so, including Jesus. Luke 24, 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets. He interpreted to them, the dejected disciples on the Emmaus Road, in all the scriptures, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. It's important, guys, for you to know about me. All the things about me. It's important, beloved, for us to know these things. Jesus desires for his followers to know about himself, and not just the basics. That's where we got to start. As the author of Hebrews told us, not just the milk. Oh, don't get me wrong. Please don't get me. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Oh, man, we need the milk. We need the milk. We, we, we often need to revisit, revisit the milk jug. We got to go back to the milk jug. Because get, why? What, what does the Bible say about us? We're forgetful. We forget. We forget. Yes, yeah, so we've got to return to the milk. But there comes a time when we also need to press on to what the author of Hebrews called solid food. Solid food is for the mature. 
for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So this is why we're studying his names. We want to know what the Bible says about our Savior, our King, our Lord, our Redeemer, our Bridegroom, Friend of Sinners, Lamb of God. We want to know Him deeply, intimately, as fully as humanly possible. And as we do that, as we do that, listen, beloved, listen how good this is. Not only do we get to know him better, and not only will we be be able to answer our friends' questions about him more accurately and more concisely, guess what? We're becoming like him. It's It's the trifecta. It's the holy trifecta. It's the triple benefit. As we study about him, We come to know him better, number one. We're able to answer questions about him better, number two. And we are becoming like him. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's why we do this. We love the milk. Oh, we love the milk. I love milk. I love real milk. Okay. I love to drink a cold glass of milk, nothing like it. But when an oatmeal cookie with it, when I Amy's oatmeal cookies, nothing like it. Nothing like it. Love milk. I love the milk of this. I need to go back to it often. But beloved, I can't stay there. I can't stay there. Solid food. Got to move on. Solid food. Yeah, eat some solid food. Strain your brain. Fry your brain cells. Then come back to the milk. Get refreshed milk. Yeah, Jesus, love. thank you, Jesus. I don't understand all that solid food. You're, but I know you love me. I know you love me. And you're working with me and you're helping me. Thank you, thank you. Okay, good milk. Back to the solid food. Guys, gang, that's what we got to do. Please hear me, please. Someone has said, again, can't remember. Ugh, not doing good on the quotes today. We become like what we behold. We become like what we behold. If all you're doing is beholding video games and stuff like that, on your, you're going to become like what you, you become, you're going to become trivial. You're going to become trivial with no impact on the world around you. We become like what we behold. Now, I don't know who said that, but whoever said that, that was a true statement because that's exactly what the Bible says. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are becoming transformed, are being transformed, becoming like what we behold. We are being transformed into the same image. Same image. What image? The image of Jesus, the one we're beholding. We're becoming like what we behold. We are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. Okay, enough intro. Let's do a quick review. We've been away from our study of the names for several weeks. So real quick, the review will be quick, but we've done a lot of them. 
If I, if I told, asked you to stand up and, and recite all the names, would you be able to do it? Probably not, so that's why I'm not going to do that. But here we go. We started with Alpha and Omega, right? Alpha and Omega. Jesus is the beginning and the end of all the things that matter. That matter. All the things that matter. Creation, spiritual life, the end goal of our lives, where we're headed. He's the Alpha and Omega. He's the apostle. He's the apostle. The one God sent to save us, to rescue us, to redeem us, to deliver us, to teach us, to proclaim the gospel. Remember one of the first things Jesus said, maybe the first thing, I think we, we saw this in, in our study of the book of Mark. This is the reason I came. What was it? A lot of people will answer, heal. Or do miracles. No, the reason he came was to preach, <laughs> to preach, to preach the gospel. He's our apostle. He's the, our advocate. He defends us in the courts of heaven. When Satan comes to us and says, you're a loser, you're a sinner, we say, yeah, but I got a defender. I got one that's already paid for all that, and he's defending me right now in heaven. He's an advocate. He's the angel of the Lord who made pre-incarnate appearances. He's the amen. He's the amen. He's God's yes. He's God's yes to our salvation and to all of his promises. All of God's promises are yes, amen, in Jesus. He's the ascended one. He's ruling at the right hand of God and serving as our king, our high priest, lovingly ruling over us and faithfully interceding for us constantly. One who has been tempted in all things yet without sin. He understands and knows, and he's interceding for us. He's the branch, a blessed reminder that God never forgets his people. Yes, the olive tree was cut, cut down, cut off. Israel was rejected, but there was a branch. There was a branch coming out of that stump. Who was it? Jesus. Jesus. And all those related to him. Us. He's the branch. He's the bread of life, the only answer to our spiritual hunger. He's the bright morning star who lights our way in this dark, sinful, fallen, cursed world. He's our bridegroom, our, <laughs> our loving bridegroom, our protector and provider, giving a model for every bridegroom in this room to do what Adam didn't do, protect and provide for their bride. The bridegroom who ultimately lays down his life for his bride. He's the beloved, the beloved son of God and our beloved. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Hallelujah. He's Christ, not a last name, not a last name, a title. He's the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one. He's the cornerstone, foundation of the church, the solid rock on which we stand and on which God builds our reborn lives. He's our counselor, our wisdom, our infallible guide through life, our wonderful counselor. He's our deliverer from sin, death, and hell. He's our ultimate help. He's, he's the door, the door, not a door. It's in Lonnie Hall's Let's Make a Deal. Okay, I got three doors over here. Pick one. No, he's the door. He's the only door to eternal life. He's the only door to God. 
He's the only door to salvation. And the good news, as we saw, it's open. It's wide open. You're here today without Christ. The door's open. The door's open for you. It's narrow. It's narrow. Only you can go through it. Young people, you don't get in on your parents' coattails. It's narrow. It's only you fit. It's low. You've got to come humble. And it's on street level. Come as you are. Come as you are. The door is open. He is the door. He's in the example. He's our example. We saw three ways. Servanthood. He washed the disciples' feet. I've left you an example. He's an example of patience. He's an example of suffering for righteousness. He's exalted. He's exalted. He's high above all things. Exalted above the heavens, far above all the earth, worthy of our utmost honor, our unrivaled worship, our highest praise, and our all-filled reverence. Don't come in here apathetic and nonchalant. You're coming before the exalted one, Jesus, name above all names. He's everlasting Father. He's God, and He gives us the gift of family. He's firstborn of all creation. Firstborn from the dead. He's faithful and true. He will never leave us or forsake us. He's final and ultimate truth. He's a friend of sinners. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He is the only perfectly holy one who comes to people who readily recognize that they are not holy and desperately need his holiness. He's forsaken. He was forsaken. Why? So we could be forgiven. So that's where we left off. And we're only going to consider one more name today. We moved to the letter G. And it's a name kind of like Trinity. You won't find it in Scripture. Trinity's, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. And that's not a word, okay, but just as an example. The word Trinity is not in the Bible, but the, the teaching, the principle of Trinity is all through the Bible, Okay. God being three in one. This term you won't find in the Bible, but it's very clear Jesus is this. He's the God-man. He's the God-man. Gerald read our sermon text. We've considered this text before. We've, we've referred to it a lot in our history, especially at Christmas. It's kind of one of the, our favorite Christmas verses. But I encourage you this morning in the middle of summer, or toward the end of summer, I guess, to let it sink in again. For me, this text never gets old. It never gets old. God, the all-powerful creator, the sovereign ruler of the universe, the uncaused cause of all things, became flesh and dwelt among us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that same word bounced down to verse 14. The word became flesh. God became human. Just simmer on that. Oh, Butch, we've done this. I don't care. Do it again. Do it again. The word became flesh dwelt among us mind-boggling incomprehensible right incomprehensible how can this be 
the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's got to be up there as one of the most, if not the most, profound statements in the history of the universe. Eternity entered time. Infinity became finite. The invisible, the invisible God became visible. The supernatural confined itself to the natural. According to Philippians 2, the king of glory emptied himself, took on the form of a servant, and was born in the likeness of men. God became man. Flesh and bone, just like you. Just like me. With all the limitations that come with that. The author of Hebrews says it like this in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. And then he, he also gives us the reason for this miracle. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, talking about Jesus, he himself likewise partook of the same things. What things? Well, flesh and blood. He's just said what it is. He partook of the same things, just like you and me. Flesh and blood. That purpose statement that through death, see, God had to have a body that could be nailed to a cross. If you go to Hebrews, beginning of Hebrews, a, a body you've prepared for me. Why? To be nailed for the sins of God's people. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through, their, through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Without Jesus, we're condemned to lifelong slavery. Slavery to sin, slavery to the devil, slavery to a place in hell forever. Unless Jesus, unless God becomes man. Are we glad are we glad or what? Are we thankful or what? The word became flesh. He partook of flesh and blood that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death and deliver all those us who through fear of death had been subject to lifelong slavery. The Word became flesh, nailed to a cross, purchased our freedom from that slavery. Let's consider a couple of other texts real quick. Titus 2, 11 to 14. Love this text. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing, uh, the appearing of the glory, listen, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
there it is. I mean, Scripture just plainly tells us Jesus is God, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus is our great God and Savior. And then 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men. Listen, the man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. There the Scripture clearly says, point blank, plain language, Jesus is a man. So Titus tells us he's our great God. Timothy tells us he's a man. And for the remainder of our time together, that's what we want to ponder. Jesus, the God-man. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to look at four passages, one from each gospel, where we clearly see the humanity of Jesus and the deity of Jesus on full display and in close proximity. Great, great pondering text, okay? Let's behold Jesus, okay? Let's behold Jesus. Oh, come, let us behold him. And maybe every one of us, every believer in here will exit those doors at about 1230 or so, a little bit more like Jesus. Because we've spent 50 minutes to an hour beholding him. Okay, that's our goal, right? You're with me? Oh, you've got to be with me. You're with me. Okay. First one, we'll go and order the Gospels. Matthew 14. Matthew chapter 14, verses uh, 22 to 25. We read this. Immediately, he, he being Jesus, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Walking on the sea. Okay, so... Within four verses, there we have it clear on clear display, the human nature of Jesus and the divine nature of Jesus. In what way? Well, human nature, he went up on the mountain to pray, to pray. We never read in the Bible where God prays. He doesn't need to. God doesn't need to pray. Prayer is an expression of need. God has no needs. He's totally self-sufficient. Prayer is an expression of adoration. There's no higher being for God to adore. Prayer is an expression of dependence. God is dependent on no one or no thing. Think of all the reasons people pray. God has none of those needs. God does not pray. Prayer is a human action. Only man, using the term generically, only men and women pray. And Jesus prayed. Why? Because he was 100% 
human. 100% man. Totally dependent on the Father. Butch explained that. I can't. That's too high for me. It's too wonderful. But the Bible says Jesus prayed. An activity of human beings. He was 100% man. And then we read, he came to them walking on the sea. (laughs) Okay, I've been to a lot of pool parties as a youth minister in my many, many years of working with youth. I've never seen a kid walk on the pool, walk on the water. I've never seen that. I've been to the ocean a lot of times. Never seen anybody walking on the water. Have you ever walked on the water? No, you haven't. Not a human activity. Man cannot perform this activity. Only God walks on the water. And Jesus did this. Why? Because he was 100% God. As a man, he prayed. As God, he walked on what he had created. He is Lord of the sea. The sea is his footstool. He's 100% God. Go to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Behold Jesus with me, okay? Don't leave me. We're beholding Jesus, the God-man. Mark chapter 1, verse 40. And a leper came to him, to Jesus, imploring him. And kneeling said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately, key word, immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Okay? Humanness of Jesus, he was moved with pity. Alternate translation, moved with compassion. A visceral churning in the gut. So here we see the reality of human emotion in the life of Jesus. Here we see human mercy expressed because of human misery. As a fellow human being, Jesus felt this real emotion for the leper. As a man, Jesus is moved by emotion over the plight of this poor individual. He's he's moved with human compassion for the man's pain, for the man's isolation, for his physical distress, his social and religious isolation. He couldn't be around people. He had to cry out unclean so people could get out of his way. They could probably smell him coming anyway. He's cut off from the synagogue, the temple. He can't go into the temple. He's totally isolated. But the human response, which we read about, that Jesus gives, he's moved with pity. He's moved with compassion. The human response to leprosy stops here. All humans can do for the leper is feel pity. And as 100% man, Jesus felt that. But God can do more. God can do more. And as we read it, like all of Jesus' healings, this one was immediate, complete, 
and total. And I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you people that know the Bible, I know what some of you are thinking. Well, what about Mark 8? There was the, the two-stage healing of the guy. You know, oh, okay, go online, and we studied Mark. Go to Mark chapter 8. Read our, our sermon on that verse, okay? I don't have time to explain that to you this morning, okay? But th- there you go. There's, an ex- there's a, a va- very valid, good explanation for that. All of Jesus' healings were immediate, complete, and total. It wasn't this, you know, Jesus healed me and now I'm feeling a little bit better and I I hope to get better tomorrow. No, bam, immediate, complete, total. And think about it with me. Let's ponder it now. We're beholding Jesus, right? Think about it. Think about what Jesus has just done. First, he's, he's made a very direct claim through his action that he's Lord of the ceremonial law. Why? He touches the leper. No, no, that's a no-no. Can't touch the leper. But Jesus did. Jesus created this guy. He's Lord over this guy and over his leprosy and over the ceremonial law. He touched the leper, okay, which shows that Jesus is Lord over the ceremonial law with the authority to put it aside at his choosing. Okay, but that's another branch of the tree. He touches a leper and then simply speaks the words. He simply speaks the words. And by doing that, Jesus heals immediately one of the most destructive and dreaded diseases of the world at that time, a disease for which there was no known cure. Beloved, beloved, only God does this. Only God does this. I love Kent Hughes's description of the healing of the leper. Kind of, kind of lengthy, I want to read it to you. First, it's, it's not on your seat saver, so don't be looking for it. It's kind of long. First, he tells us about the disease itself, okay? He writes this. What is important to note is that leprosy, or Hansen's disease, as it's better known today, after the man who diagnosed its cause, is not a rotting infection, as is commonly thought, nor are its horrible outward physical deformities imposed by the disease. In recent years, the research of Dr. Paul Brand and others has proven that the disfigurement associated with Hansen's disease comes solely because the body's warning system of pain is destroyed. The disease acts as an anesthetic. In other words, you can't feel anything, especially in your extremities. The disease acts as an anesthetic, bringing numbness to the extremities as well as to the ears, eyes, and nose. The devastation that follows comes from such incidents as reaching one's hand into a charcoal fire to retrieve a dropped potato or washing one's face with scalding water or gripping a tool so tightly that the hands become traumatized and eventually stump-like. In third world countries, vermin sometimes chew on sleeping lepers. Dr. Brand calls the disease a, quote, painless hell, end quote. And indeed it is. The poor man in our story had not been able to feel for years, and his body, according to Luke's account, was full of leprosy, mutilated from head to foot, rotten, stinking, repulsive. Now that's what, that's the being, that's the individual that approaches Jesus. 
He then describes what happened when the incarnate Christ moved with compassion, a human emotion, reached out and touched this pitifully, this pitiful, formerly forsaken leper. The healing was sudden and complete. His feet, toeless, ulcerated stubs were suddenly whole, bursting his shrunken sandals. The knobs on his hands grew fingers before his very eyes. Back came his hair, eyebrows, eyelashes. Under his hair were ears and before him a nose. His skin was supple and soft. Can you hear a thundering roar from the multitude? Can you hear the man crying, not unclean, unclean, but I'm clean, I'm clean. Dear church family, only God heals like this. Only God does this. Only God can do this. Jesus, the God-man, went beyond compassion, which is all a human being could have done for this man, to complete, total, and immediate healing of this hellish disease. And listen, <laughs> let's carry it one step, one glorious step further. Just like Jesus healed our hellish disease. Not called leprosy, but called sin. When he paid for our sin with his blood and gave us new birth through the power of the resurrection. Gang, the leper is us. Okay? The leper's us. And by his touch, Jesus has healed us like that. Hallelujah. Behold him. Behold him, beloved. Please don't ever get tired of it. Behold him, the God man. Number three, Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. Verses 22 to 24. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep, and a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. Okay, I read that kind of fast. Make sure you know. And as they sailed, he did what? He fell asleep. He felt Jesus is sleeping. Okay, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on them on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke because he was sleeping and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. And he said to them, Where's your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this? Who is this? That he commands even winds and water, and they obey him. So, human nature, obviously Jesus is sleeping. As, as you think about that, and get that picture in your head of Jesus 
laying in the boat, sleeping. Keep that picture in mind as we read Psalm 121, verses 1 to 4. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. So what's the, what, it, what, what are we reading here? Well, God doesn't sleep. God doesn't sleep. Only humans sleep. We have to. We get tired. We have to sleep. As a man, Jesus grew weary. He grew tired. So as a man, he slept. God doesn't sleep. Only man sleeps. Jesus slept. Jesus, 100% man. But then he wakes up. Okay, the disciples wake him up because of the storm. And look what he does. He speaks, and it's an immediate slick, what sailors call a slick. The, the water is like a mirror. It, it goes from raging and tumult and stormy to total peace. At the sound of Jesus' voice, what man is this? that even the winds and waves obey him. This is God. It's the only answer. It's the only answer. It's God. Only man sleeps. Only God controls nature. Jesus did both. He's the God-man. And note verse 25. Here we see the proper response to God, the proper heart attitude. They were afraid and they marveled. Fear and amazement. Proper respect proper wonder, proper reverence, proper honor, proper blown awayness. This is what Jesus brings out in the truly reborn heart. Fear and amazement. We fear him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. We fear him. We respect him. We honor him, knowing he has had every right to condemn us to hell forever. But we marvel that he didn't. (laughs) We marvel that he didn't. We're blown away. We stand amazed in the presence of Jesus, the Nazarene. Oh, beloved church family, stand amazed. Be amazed at Jesus, the God-man. Last one, John 11, one of my favorite passages, uh, Scripture passages of all. Uh, Gosh, it's already noon. I probably shouldn't start it because there's so many rabbit trails here. Uh, So many... Uh, delicious little uh, trails we could get on uh, in this great, great uh, passage. Uh, Are you still with me? Are you with me? Okay, a few more minutes. Okay, John 11. You're familiar with this. You know, great, great, great event. Last public miracle of Jesus, the raising of Lazarus. Let's start at verse 32, John 11. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Verse 35. 
If you've never started the scripture memory routine, here's a good verse to start with. John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. And so the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may also believe that you sent me that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Okay, human nature, real quick. He's greatly troubled. Once again, the emotion that we saw with the leper. He's greatly troubled and he wept. Again, human qualities. God is never troubled. God's in total control all the time. He's never troubled. Never troubled. And nor do we ever read of God weeping. Tears are a human trait. Human grief on display. And most commentators will say this weeping was probably not over the death of Lazarus because Jesus knows what he's about to do. He knows what he's going to do. Okay? With the weeping, Jesus is identifying with the grief and pain of Lazarus' sisters and the effects of sin on a fallen humanity. The effect of death because of sin. So, as fully man, Jesus was troubled and he wept. But as we once again see, this man is more than just a man. Because only God raises the dead. Now, I know you've read this passage a million times, probably. Maybe not a million, but a few hundred. I know you've read this passage a lot. And some of you maybe go, oh, okay, well, no, please don't let that happen. Go back in this moment, okay? Put yourself back in this moment. And let it boggle your mind afresh and anew. Let's savor it together this morning. And look what Jesus does, okay? Let's kind of get, get some steps here. First, take away the stone. Take away the, okay, come on, come on. This is the guy that walks on the sea. Jesus could have snapped his fingers, blinked his eyes or whatever, and, and, and sent that stone rolling. He owns the stone. He could have done anything. He could have moved it. Why, why did he tell them to take away the stone? Because they could do that. Kind of the same reason we ask adults to teach our children in Sunday school. You can do that. As we read in Hebrews 5, you have need to be teachers. You can do that. You can do that. You've gone beyond milk. You're getting in the solid food. You can teach. You can do that. What's the principle here? We do what we can do. And trust God to do what only he can do. Like right now. I'm preaching about Jesus. I can do that. I can do that. But I'm begging God to do in some of your hearts what I can't do. Take out the heart of stone, put in the heart of flesh. I'm begging God to give you a new heart. I'm begging God to give you 
rebirth. I can't do that. I can do this. I can't do that. Those people could move the stone. They couldn't raise that from the dead. And they didn't even know what was about to happen. Only Jesus can. Only God can do that. And Jesus, as 100% God, did it. Then he says to the sister, to Martha, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Interesting statement, right? Notice he didn't say, Didn't I say that if you believed, you would see your brother come out of the tomb? He didn't say that. This is so important. Please don't miss this. This is vital. He didn't, in other words, the raising of Lazarus is not dependent or contingent upon Mary's faith. Jesus is saying this, remembering the response to Martha's concern about the odor. Man, he's been dead four days. Please don't take that stone away. That's going to be so embarrassing when that stench comes out of that tomb. Please, please don't move the stone. Martha, you got your eyes on the wrong thing. Take your eyes off the corpse. Put them on God. Because if your eyes are on the corpse, when your brother walks out of the tomb, all you're going to see is a dead man come alive. But if your eyes are on the Father, when he walks out of the, out of the tomb, you're going to see the glory of God. Do you see the difference? Oh, yeah, walking out of the tomb, that's a big deal. That's huge. But let's connect it to the right thing. The glory of God. Didn't I, didn't I say, Martha, that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? See, I, Martha, I want you to see more than just a dead body come out of the tomb. I want you to see the glory of God. Fix your, set your mind on things above, not on things of this earth. Think, I, I don't know what's going on in all your lives. I know some of the things. That I need to know more. I need to be a better shepherd. I need to be a better pastor, but we've all got issues. We've all got problems, and and I think Jesus is telling us right here, okay, I I recognize your problem. I see you. I I care. I know. I'm sympathetic high priest, but I'm, I'm, I'm urging you. Take your eyes off the problem. Fix them above. Set them on things above. Fix your eyes on Jesus, and then when I move, to bring relief. When I move to solve your problem, you're going to see more than just a problem solved. You're going to see my glory. Beloved, that's what he wants for us. He wants our eyes in the right place. Off the corpses, above, on the heavenlies, on Jesus. Okay? Then verse 41 and 42, Jesus begins to pray. Why does he do that? He wants them to know where he came from. Now, that's basically what he says, isn't it? I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. I want them to know where I came from. Father, I want you to be glorified. And then Lazarus come out. Man, aren't you glad he said Lazarus? I know you've heard that a million times from a million preachers. If you just said come out, there would have been a big crowd in that graveyard. Okay, Lazarus, you, Lazarus. Now, see, there's a, there's a rabbit trail right there, right? I could really branch off on election, couldn't I? Right there. Okay, Lazarus, you. Pinpoint, you. Lazarus, come Oh, not fair. He didn't call the other people out of the tomb. Come on, he's not fair, unloving. No, no, no. Nobody gets injustice, right? Some people get mercy. Lazarus got mercy. Lazarus, you, come out. Think about that now. Ponder that moment. Ponder that moment. 
at the sound of Jesus' words, just his words. Remember, he'd been in there four days. He's probably looking worse than the leper. Rotted flesh became whole again immediately. Coagulated blood that had gathered in the extremities of the body became liquid again. It began to flow through veins that a second before that had been all What's the word for it? When a vein collapsed, the collapsed veins now are, are, are open again. The blood that had been coagulated just before Jesus spoke is now flowing through those veins. Rods and cones in the eyeball that had been dead for four days are suddenly working again, and vision begins to break forth from Lazarus' eyeballs, even though all he sees is probably a cloth. Everything begins working. Just like that at the sound of Jesus' voice. Who is this amazing being? And again, just like the leper was us, Lazarus is us. We were dead in trespasses and sins. We were in the tomb of, of, of death, even though we were physically alive. Destined for hell forever, and Jesus spoke. And called your name and said, come forth. And you did, because his grace is irresistible. And now you're alive, spiritually. We were Lazarus. Who is this amazing being? Well, this is Jesus Christ. No one like him. None like him. Jesus Christ, the God-man, the Word became flesh, the unique and awesome Son of the living God, the victorious serpent crusher, the glorious death conqueror who raises people from the dead easier than we raise people from their sleep. A lot of you got teenagers. You know what I'm talking about. Listen, beloved, the only response to someone like this is submissive, unrestrained, joyful worship. Have you bowed the knee to King Jesus? If not, today is the day. And know this, if you choose not to do that, one day you will. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord, God incarnate, the Word made flesh. G. G. Campbell Morgan, I'll end with him. He put it like this. He was the God-man, not God indwelling a man. Of such there have been many, (laughs) like you and me. Holy Spirit, indwelling, God indwelling a man. There's, there's, there's millions of those kind of people. Not God indwelling a man. Of such there have been many. Not a man deified. Of such there have been none, save in the myths of pagan systems of thought. But God and man, combining in one personality the two natures, a perpetual enigma and mystery, baffling the possibility of explanation. So what do we do? We behold him. 
we behold him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you so much. God, I, I, I pray with all my heart that my precious church family would never tire of beholding him. Open the eyes of our heart wider to who you are and who he is. And we thank you for this precious moment in time right now where we get to come to your table and commune with the risen God-man in a spiritual sense. Thank you for that, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.